Good evening. Um, This evening's Bible reading is from Jonah chapter 3, verse 1 to 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called out for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. He, and he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the, by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening, church. Good evening. Okay, okay. It's good. Uh, it's good to be together again um, and to be going through uh, the book of Jonah. It's our third week. Uh, if you've been here for three weeks, say amen. Amen, amen. Um, if you haven't and this is your first time joining us, uh, it would be of great help uh, to me, to you as well. Uh, I think enriching as well, if you would go back and listen to the other two talks that we've done. Um, I think, yeah, this book has been amazing. I think it's been a book that I've looked at myself before, um, but uh, just having the opportunity to dive even deeper into it this time around has been such a great encouragement, um, and I think it would be helpful if you would do yourself that blessing um, of going back to those sermons and digging deep into into the book of Jonah. Amen. Amen. So we, we're in chapter 3 today, uh, and I'm going to pray for us and ask the Lord to, to help us as we uh, get into his word. So let's bow our heads and let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful um, that it's, it's everlasting, that it speaks, that it's life-transforming and changing. Um, thank you that uh, you are a God who... Uh, yeah, deals with second chances. Lord, we fail so many times, um, and yet we come back to you in your arms and heart um, is open, and you take us back. Um, thank you for that, Lord. Um, if it wasn't for uh, your relentless pursuit towards us, uh, we don't know where we would be. And so we just want to be reminded of that, Lord. I don't know uh, what people are dealing with, uh, where their hearts are, what they've left at home, uh, what's waiting for them tomorrow at the office. But, Father, I know that you love them. We know that you care for us. And even in the book of Jonah, you've been reminding us of how much you would chase after us 
um, away from the things that take us from you. And so I do pray, Father, that our hearts would not compete with anything else but would be focused on you today. Um, And that even as we hear you speak to us, we would leave this place encouraged to live for you um, and to live a life of hope. Um, We pray for all of these things in your wonderful name, Jesus. Amen. Amen, amen. So just to give us a quick recap on where we are, last week we looked at chapter 2, and we last saw Jonah being vomited by the fish, as vomited onto the land, um, into the Assyrian Empire. So the mission that he was running away from, from Nineveh, uh, the fish vomited him on um, uh, Nineveh's soil, rather. Um, And this was after a very elaborate religious performance in the belly of the fish, right? Did all the gymnastics, did all the backflips and everything, and God wasn't impressed with his religious acts and performance. Hence, God then commands the fish to vomit Jonah out. Um, and we saw how that language is taken from Leviticus 18, where uh, God warns the Israelites that if they live in iniquity or in sin, the land that he has brought them to will vomit them out as well. Um, those are the same readers who are reading Jonah. Um, while they are currently in exile, having been vomited by the land, and God is reminding them through the book of Jonah um, of their sin and is calling them to to repentance and humility. We saw that Jonah did not repent um, in chapter 2. Again, there's a lot of debate around whether Jonah did repent uh, in chapter 2, but I think, as we saw last week, it was very clear, and the more I get into this book, it becomes even much clearer that Jonah did not repent. Jonah does not have the heart for the mission of God that has been called to. And so where we find him today, he walks into Nineveh uh, absent-minded. He walks into Nineveh um, indifferent, really doesn't care about the people that God has sent him to. Um, all he would care is that God would show him love, mercy, grace, and, and blessings and shower him and his people with all uh, gifts, but he doesn't care about the people that God uh, has sent him to. And so with that in mind, what we're going to look at this evening, uh, one is Jonah's heart, uh, and then secondly, we're going to look at the hearts of the outsiders, which are the Ninevites, the people that Jonah has been called to. And then thirdly, uh, which I think will be littered throughout this whole uh, chapter in chapter 3, which is also littered throughout this whole book, is the heart of God. So we'll see Jonah's heart, or the heart of Jonah, we'll see the heart of the outsiders, and then we'll see uh, the heart of God. Uh, And speaking about the heart of God, um, there's something that the author does in chapter 3. In fact, he does it throughout the whole book, but very clearly here in chapter 3. He speaks of this theme of overturning. Uh, Jonah uses that word in verses 4b, uh, where he says that Nineveh would be overthrown. That word could also be interpreted as overturn. Um, And so we'll see what the the author means uh, when he speaks of uh, overturning. He actually is referring to the heart of God, that God's heart is a heart that overturns. Uh, But we'll we'll see as we get into the chapter what that actually means. Um, But where we are now uh, is literally the the second half of the book. So the first half is chapter 1 till chapter 2, and then the second half is chapter 3 till chapter 4. Um, And I believe what holds these two chapters, what's in the middle of these two two chapters, the heart of these two halves, um, or the spine of these two halves, again, is the statement or the summary that we've been using throughout the weeks. 
to say what is at the center of the book of Jonah. And it's this, uh, that God will relentlessly pursue Jonah, just like God will relentlessly pursue you and I. Um, Why is God pursuing Jonah? Well, he wants to eliminate sin's grip over Jonah's life. Uh, Jonah is a self-centered prophet. Jonah cares nothing about everyone else but himself. And God wants to get rid of that grip over his life because he wants Jonah to live a life of holiness. And so God will do that. So he propels us towards holiness, a life uh, where we look more and more like him. And if God is determined to do that, then God will fearlessly chase Jonah down uh, from all these dark corners that Jonah finds himself in. Uh, Just like God will do that for us as well. He will fearlessly chase after us, uh, especially when we've gotten ourselves in very dark corners. Amen. We see that very clearly here in chapter 3. This is a chapter about overturning, a chapter about overthrowing. And what that means is a chapter about new beginnings, a chapter about second chances. Amen. Uh, I don't know where you're at, but I, I, I need second chances. I need second chances every day. Today is Father's Day, and uh, when I woke up, I was supposed to dress my daughter. <clears throat> and uh, I don't know where she gets her style from, but uh, she likes arguing over clothes. Um, and out of, out of anger and frustration, I literally threw her whole, well, she has a small cupboard. I just threw the whole thing on the wall. That's how my Father's Day started, right? Uh, so happy Father's Day to me. <clears throat> so I know I need second chances, man. I need second chances. So driving to church was me on the call with her trying to apologize, feeling like a punk. Um, and that's what we're going to see here, a God who gives second chances, a God who cares for, for real sinners like you and I, who go through real life, who get ourselves stuck in dark corners, right? This God is saying to you this evening, there is a second chance. Uh, you can run away, but he'll come. He'll chase after you. If he loves you, if he cares for you, he'll not leave nor forsake you. Um, and he will overthrow whatever sin uh, has easily entangled you. Um, why do I think that this chapter speaks about that again? It's that one word in verses 4b. And Jonah's message. Jonah comes in very indifferently in Nineveh and he says, Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Again, that word could be used or translated as overturned. Um, and this is exactly uh, what this chapter is all about. The heart of God. A God who is clearly seen in this chapter to overturn. And what overturn means, it means to turn things upside down, to reverse things completely, to withdraw, to, with, uh, to overrule or to take back. And why does God do any of those things? Again, essentially to give us a second chance, to grant us new beginnings. Um, So what the author does, and he does this very skillfully throughout the book, uh, he compares these two halves. Half one, the first half is chapter one till two, and the second half is chapter three till four. And so what he does, to kind of show us the heart of God, he, he mirrors chapter 1 and chapter 3, which are the intros of the two halves, right? Um, and he does this very skillfully, right? I, I write poetry, but yeah, see, this is next level, right? And how he mirrors this thing. And the reason why he mirrors chapter 3 and chapter 1 is so that we can clearly see uh, the heart of God. He wants to magnify the heart of God, the heart of God that overturns things, the heart of God that uh, turns things upside down, the heart of God that reverses situations completely, the heart of God that withdraws punishment, that overrules judgment, the heart of God that chases and takes back those who have wandered off, the heart of God that gives second chances. 
And that's what the author wants us to see as he mirrors this. And we want to do this exercise. Um, it's going to be hard to kind of turn back page, you know, uh, chapter 3, chapter 1. Um, but I, I pray that you would do this exercise yourself at home. We're going to do it now because uh, I think it's important and it helps us to see uh, the heart uh, of God before we get into the heart of Jonah and the heart of the outsiders. Um, and so if you're taking notes, please write down these, these verses. Right? Uh, but if you're not... Please listen to the sermon again. And I think, uh, do this for yourself. Again, not just to sit and listen to a sermon, but to really engage with the Lord, to really see the heart of God, to see a God who can really overturn situations in your life, a God who will give you second chances, that you're not just going to hear it from me standing up here, but you'll believe it for yourself as you engage with this God from his very word, right? Um, And so we see this mirror imaging uh, between those two chapters, chapter 3 and chapter 1. So so let's start um, and we'll walk down through it. So chapter 1, verses 1, he mirrors that with chapter 3, verses 1, right? So 1, 1, he mirrors that with 3, 1. What's the image there that he's trying to portray? Uh, We see the word of God that goes to Jonah, right? Uh, Or the Bible says the word of the Lord came to Jonah. So, so that's the image that he's mirroring. But in chapter 3, uh, we see that the author adds to that, uh, to that phrase, that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, and he says that the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. What does he want us to see? He wants us to see God's grace. Uh, God's word came the first time to Jonah in chapter 1 and chapter 3. It's coming again the second time. God is not done with Jonah. God does not want to leave Jonah alone. God still cares for Jonah. God wants Jonah to be holy, and he will come to Jonah again a second time to extend his grace. Chapter 1, verses 2, and chapter 3, verses 2. What's the mirror there? What's the image? Uh, We see the word that is given uh, to Jonah. What's that word? Arise, go to Nineveh. Uh, But in chapter 3, he adds something else there uh, to verses 2. And he says, as Jonah takes this message to Nineveh, um, go pronounce this message that I tell you. Um, He didn't say that in chapter 1. So what is he telling us now in chapter 3? This is a God who is going to be with Jonah. God is saying to Jonah, in case you were running away because you thought I wasn't going to be with you, let me press in even deeper. Let me show you my grace. Let me move in closer and more intimately. Jonah, I'm going to guide you as we go to the Ninevites. I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm not going to forsake you. As you go into the belly of the Assyrian Empire, I'm going to be there with you. I will give you the message that you need to give these people. So in case you were running away because you thought I wasn't going to be with you, which we know is not that case, but God is showing Jonah his heart. His heart is open. He doesn't want to give up on Jonah. And here he is again showing up for him. Chapter 1, verses 3. Chapter 3, verses 3. What do we see there? Jonah's response. Jonah, in chapter 1, responds by rising and fleeing. But in chapter 3, he rises and goes into Nineveh. In chapter 3, we are told that Nineveh is a three days journey. And so what the author wants us to remember here um, is that in chapter 1, when Jonah ran away, he ended up in the belly of the fish in verses 17 of chapter 1 for three days. And here... Jonah has been sent by God into the belly of the Assyrian Empire. Because remember that Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. So from the belly of the fish, 
God is sending him into the belly of the Assyrian Empire. What is the author saying about God here? The same God who had put him in the fish for three days, who was gracious to him and rescued him, is the same God who's certainly going to be gracious to him now as he goes into the belly of the Assyrian Empire. This God who won't leave him. This God is not going to forsake him. This God who relentlessly pursues after Jonah. Chapter 1, verses 4. Chapter 3, verses 4. God speaks. In chapter 1, how does God speak? He speaks through the storm. But we've seen in chapter 1 that the storm creates confusion. It creates chaos. The sailors don't know what is going on. But God is trying to speak to his prophet that had ran away. But in chapter 3, God speaks through that prophet um, who is meant uh, to be much clearer than just the storm. In chapter 1, verses 5, chapter 3, verses 5, we see that after God speaks in verses 4, the pagans then respond to God. In chapter 1, the pagans respond in fear to the storm. So the storm rocks their lives, and then they're throwing things off board, and that's how they respond. They're fearing the storm. But in chapter 3, we see the pagans in Nineveh responding in fear to the word of God. So they responded in fear to the storm, but here they're responding to the, fear, uh, to the word of God. Again, this God who's pressing in to the pagans. He's pressing in into nations that had turned their backs against him. Verses 6 of chapter 1, verses 6 of chapter 3. We see the leaders of these pagan nations responding to God. In chapter 1, the captain uh, is not sure about which God has brought the storm, but in chapter 3, the king of Nineveh is very clear on which God is bringing this judgment. Uh, And he responds in repentance. He doesn't acknowledge God in his covenant name, so he doesn't call him Yahweh, but at least he calls him God, meaning that out of all the other gods that he used to worship, he recognizes that this God is bigger and is above all other gods. And yet in chapter 1, the captain was trying to figure out which God has brought the storm. Chapter 3, we clearly know which God it is. It is the God, again, as Jonah reminded us, who created the sea, created the dry land, who created the heavens, who created the earth. Um, Chapter 1, verses 7 till 8. Chapter 3, verses 7 till 8. There's a clear directive. In chapter 1, in verses 7 till 8, Uh, The sailors cast lots, trying to figure out what are the next steps that they're going to take to calm the storm. So they're trying to figure out, out of everyone on this boat, uh, who created this. Because if we can find out, then they can stop the storm by praying to their God. Uh, In chapter 3, there's no casting of lots. uh, But the king is very clear. There's a clear directive. He knows which God has spoken. Uh, And therefore, he puts a decree uh, to say that everyone else needs to overturn their way of evil um, so that they can turn to this God uh, who is pronouncing judgment over them. Verses 9 of chapter 1, verses 9 of chapter 3, what is he mirroring there? Jonah's empty theology or the Israelites' empty theology versus that of the 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 Ninevites or the pagans, who had a sincere theology. So in chapter 1, again, verses 9, we saw from week 1, Jonah had an empty theology that he used to try and hide the real issue that he was running away from. So he says all this elaborate stuff about how amazing God is, but we know he's actually just doing that to cover up the real issue. But here, in chapter 3, the Ninevites don't do that at all. But instead, they have a sincere theology. They're genuine 
in trying to inquire what the right way is to work out the process of repentance for them. Uh, it reminds us of, of early stages you know, of, of a believer. It's really trying to figure out how to love the Lord, how to leave their old life. They don't have all these big categories that some of us have as we've walked in our faith longer. They don't have the fancy theology. They just know, I need to leave this old life and run to this God who has saved me. Right? Um, and we see Jonah in chapter 1 who then is trying to hide from the real issue by using theology. These guys don't have any genuine, big, elaborate theology. They just have willing hearts to turn to God. And lastly then, verses 10 of chapter 1 and verses 10 of chapter 3, we see how the men respond to God, and then we see how God responds to the men. Verses chapter 1, rather, after the storm had calmed down, the sailors showed exceeding fear towards the Lord. And then you jump over to chapter 3, after the Ninevites had turned from their ways of evil. God relents, and he shows exceeding grace towards them. Right? And so as the author is contrasting these two chapters, he wants us to see the heart of God. He's saying you cannot miss the heart of God as he contrasts these two chapters. You must see that this is a God of second chances, a God whose arms are wide open, a God whose heart is huge, whose patience is long. Amen. This is a God for you. This is a God that Jonah ran away from. But here, this is a God who's saying, my arms are wide open. I will relentlessly pursue you. I will come after you. I will chase after you. It doesn't matter what dark corner you've gotten yourself into. That's what the author wants us to see as we think about the, the second half of this book. Uh, we've just come back again from Jonah, who's not repentant. And we think God should show him judgment. God should punish him for not repenting. And the author says, no, look at how God still opens his arms towards Jonah. Look at how God still calls Jonah and says he loves him and he chooses Jonah. Um, it's a radical idea, right? It's a crazy idea. Um, so with that in mind, as we think about the heart of God, let's go into the heart of Jonah. Read with me chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, um, as we get stuck into that. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Um, what the author is saying to us by the time we get to chapter 3 is that if you're not convinced that Jonah is, is a self-centered prophet, right, what chapter 3 wants to do is, is overturn your mind, right, is to overthrow your understanding completely. Um, in chapter 3, the author wants to contrast Jonah's heart against that of God's heart. Um, and once he does that, Jonah's heart is found wanting. Um, these two hearts are, are totally at polar opposites. On one hand, again, you get a God whose heart is wide open, ready to receive any sinner who will repent. And that's what the author wants us to see in chapter 3. As the book progresses, any sinner who is willing to repent, this God will accept his own prophet didn't repent in chapter 2, and yet his arms and heart are wide open, saying, even you, Jonah, I will receive. 
What more of you, as you sit here, and all the sins that are weighing you down, this God is calling you to say, if you will repent, he will receive you. His patience is long. He's willing to chase you no matter how far you have gone. This God is willing to chase you. But if we examine Jonah's heart, verses 2, God tells us that he's going to give a message to Jonah so that he can go and tell uh, that message to the Ninevites. Um, so we see God's heart that intimately wants to get involved as he sends Jonah on mission. But compare verses 2 to verses 4. It seems that Jonah discards whatever message God gives him. Right? So the author doesn't tell us what the message is, but it seems that Jonah discards this message, again revealing his heart of indifference to this mission that God has called him. Uh, We are not told what the mission is, but what the author wants us to think as Bible readers is that every other time we see a prophet who gets a message from God, the message is never this short. What happens when a prophet gets a message from God? Uh, At least we tend to hear the message three times. How do we hear the message three times? Well, the first time, it's God giving the message to the prophet. Uh, The second time we hear the message, it's the prophet giving that message to the people. And the third time, which doesn't happen often, it's the people either saying the message back to the prophet or back to God in repentance. Um, But here in Jonah, we only hear this message once. And when we hear it once, it seems very compressed and very shortened compared to any other message that we hear of other prophets. So what is the author wanting of us as Bible readers? He wants us to think with what we already know of Jonah to see what Jonah is doing here. Jonah is boxing with God. Jonah is taking a stance and saying, whatever message you give me, God, I don't care about that. I want to set my own agenda. I'm going to compress this message, misinterpret it so that it fits my own desires. I don't care about the message that you are giving me. Jonah is self-centered again, and he compressed this message, misinterpreted according to his own desires. And so when he gets to verses 4b and he says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, Jonah uses the word overthrown in the same way that it's used to describe the aftermath of Sodom and Gomorrah. So if the author wants us to see God's heart that overturns everything and gives second chances, Jonah does not use the word overthrown to give second chances, but he uses the word overthrown or even overturned to mean that Nineveh needs to fall, just like Sodom and Gomorrah fell. Because that's what he hoped for. That's what was in his heart. He wanted the city to burn to the ground. That's what he wanted. He wanted God's judgment to be filled in this whole place. Unlike other prophets who come and bring a judgment, they always bring God's name. Thus says the Lord, and then they proceed to give the message. But Jonah does not even bother to give the name of the Lord. He doesn't care about these people, doesn't care about their fates or their their existence or their salvation. He doesn't even care about the God who sent him to give that message at all. doesn't even bother to give them the name of the Lord. Most prophets would tell the people, hey, this is the judgment that's coming, and this is who it's coming from. But Jonah doesn't even bother to do that. Again, this compressed message of his fully expresses the core of his own heart. He is self-centered, doesn't care about the mission of God, hasn't repented from chapter 2, and it's very clear here. He walks into Nineveh indifferent. He walks into Nineveh uh, just not here at all. Uh, 
And so as a reader, what the author is asking us is do we possess the heart of Jonah? As you sit here this evening, do you possess the heart of Jonah? Do you not care about the lost? What connection do you even have with those who are not Christian? Is the only time you think about those who are not Christian or interact with them, it's when you want to give God's judgment over their lives. Is that the only time you think about your non-Christian friends, family, work colleagues, neighbors? Is when you think, yes, I wish these people could burn. That's what the author is asking us. Do we have the heart of Jonah? What closeness do we have to those who are lost? I've shared this story, I think, here a couple of times. Um, And if you've heard it, clearly the Lord wants you to hear it again. You didn't hear it the first time. (laughs) Um, But for the sake of these people, I'll change the names. I've never used their names when I've shared the story. Um, But we'll call... One guy, Timothy, and another guy, Calvin. Um, And I went to school with Timothy and Calvin. Timothy had correct theology, but no heart for God, at least from what I've experienced. Uh, Calvin, on the other hand, did not have correct theology, according to Timothy, but he seemingly had a heart for God. I wasn't a Christian, went to school with both of them, Um, And if you know anything about my non-Christian life, um, yeah, let's leave it. Uh, It was a very colorful one. Um, And I remember years later when I had met Jesus, I met Timothy in this very church. (laughs) And I was like, yo, Timothy, what are you doing here, dog? And he was like, yo, dog, what are you doing here? Um, And I was like, I'm a Christian, bro. And he's like, what? I'm like, are you a Christian? He's like, I've been a Christian. I'm like, since when? He's like, since school. I'm like, what? So when we were in varsity together, you just let me run around here in my nonsense. And his exact words were, "Ah, bro, I just thought you were a reject, eh? (laughs) (laughs) And so I'm like, but you... Like, you've been in these kind of churches like ours where the Bible is taught, and you just let me just live however with the possibility that I was going to hell and you never bothered sharing the gospel with me. And your excuse was, I just seemed like a reject. And then you get Calvin. Probably goes to a very, very colorful church. Still does. With incorrect theology. But that man prayed for me. That man invited me to his house every night I was drunk from a club. He would lay a bed on the floor because he didn't want me to mess up his clean linen. But he would lay a bed on the floor for me. Um, Turns out when I was drunk, sleeping, he would be praying at night for me. Um, I'd wake up in the morning, he would have fixed the breakfast for me. Um, But then he he would invite me to church and he would tell me that he's praying for me. And I remember the, the day I got, or the week or month I got saved, he was the very first person I, I wanted to tell. Um, and that's, that's when he said, yo, man, I've been praying for you. I've been praying for you. And I invited you to my house not because I thought you were cool, but I was on mission, and I've been praying for you. Um, and so the reader of Jonah is asked that question. 
whose heart do you have? Jonah's heart, that's seemingly like Timothy's heart. Or do you have Calvin's heart? Um, a heart that will go out because God has put you on mission. That the people who are lost around you um, are there. And you are next to them because God wants to draw them to himself through you. When we think about Jonah's uh, first readers and the heart they had, uh, these were Jews again in exile who had been invaded and and captured uh, by their enemies. And so they're reading this while in exile. Um, And if we remember again from last week what the context of their exile was, they had been vomited by the land uh, because of their iniquity. They had turned their backs away from God. Um, And so God had sent them to exile to, to work this out of them. And so we would assume that they're in exile um, and they, they are humbled by that experience or they're repenting, um, but they clearly weren't. They clearly weren't. And there were Jews who were self-centered, unrepented, and entitled religious insiders as well. And so as they're reading Jonah, uh, they don't want the Ninevites to be saved. Just like they do not want their current oppressors in exile to be saved. And so as they're reading Jonah, God is challenging them in real time. In real time, um, I have sent you into exile, yes, because you've sinned. But I've also sent you into exile so that you can evangelize your captors. The people that have captured you, the people that have brought you out of your land, I've sent you there so that you can evangelize them and share the truth with them. Jonah was in the belly of the Assyrian Empire. They're in the belly of their exile. And God is asking them the same question. Are you going to share the truth about the God of the universe with these pagan nations that have captured you? And obviously, they're probably thinking to himself, how could we do that? How could we share your truth with these enemies? You just need to rain judgment on them. They do not deserve salvation at all. But again, God's judgment on their lives is meant to lead them to repentance. And God, through judging them, brings them closer to these other pagan nations so that he can reach them as well. And that's a question for us this evening. What are we doing in our exile? Um, God has left us here, not because he he didn't have space for us in heaven. He makes it very clear in John 17 that he leaves us here because through us he wants to reach out to other sheep that are not in his pen yet. Salana, do not make your exile more miserable than it can be. Don't be suffer in this world. Amen? Right? Interest rates are killing us. Relationships destroying us. Hmm? Followers on Instagram. Dololo. Hearts is sore. Exams are destroying us at school. Right? Already that's there. Why make your exile more miserable by not sharing Jesus with other people? At least, right? Let that be the joy. Because that's going to count for all eternity. That's going to count for something that really matters. Whether you get the next relationship or not, aski sister. But it's not going to really matter in eternity. There's no marriage up there, right? But what will be there? people that you have shared Jesus with. Why make your exile more miserable? It's already tough. We've sinned. And yes, God has saved us. 
there's consequences of our sin that we're still dealing with. But God in his mercy, in his heart that's open, in his patience that's long, leaves us here so that he can partner with us to draw other sinners like us to himself. Um, so let's not have the hearts of Jonah, the hearts of these Israelites. Uh, verses 5, the author reminds us uh, that even through Jonah's self-centered, very compressed, misinterpreted message, God still works through and past that, right? and the Ninevites get saved. So even in Jonah's hard heart, God still works to soften the hearts of the Ninevites. Um, and he's a faithful God. He's a God with a big heart. And let's look at the hearts of uh, outsiders. Read with me uh, 6 till, um, till 9, verses 6 till 9. The word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Hallelujah. And the angels spoke. Uh, so after, after Jonah gives his half-baked message, um, we see again that God works uh, through it despite it. And he extends his mercy to uh, the Ninevites. And then a miraculous or incredible or even remarkable thing happens that we see a nationwide repentance. Um, everybody repents, right? From the greatest to the least. Uh, from the king down to the livestock, everybody uh, repents. Um, and so we see in verses 6 that unlike Jonah that we've seen already in chapters 1 and 2, the king of Assyria does exactly what God calls him to do. He rises right, at the word of the Lord. He listens. He hears to the call of the Lord. What does the author want us to see here again? He wants us to see an overthrowing and overturning by God again. In chapters 1, his prophet, who he had called to arise, that prophet ran. That prophet slept in chapter 1. But in chapter 3, here the king of Assyria, this is one of the greatest empires. This is a king who set himself up Right? Um, as a fierce force of such a great empire, and yet he is submitting essentially to a king of a different kingdom. He gets off his throne. Well, we've seen Jonah this whole time trying to kick God off God's throne. But here the king of Assyria gets off his throne, submits himself to God. The author wants us to ask why. Why would Jonah not have the same heart as these outsiders? Again, we've seen it over and over, but Jonah has uh, a very entitled view, um, and he thinks because he is Jewish, um, he has exclusive rights to God's salvation. And that's the whole irony of the book, that the people who thought they have every right to God and had all the things set in place for them to repent, don't repent. Jonah, you had God's law. 
But that does not lead you to repentance. Jonah, you have a rich heritage, a history of God working through your people. You have prophets who spoke directly from God to you. Jonah, you had God's temple. You had God's presence. Everything that was set up for you to soften your heart, to lead you to repentance at some level, yet all those things don't. And yeah, the heart of the outsider, the Ninevites, on the other hand, who had nothing in comparison to Jonah and the Israelites, yet they go on a full repentance. Um, Again, from the greatest to the least of them, all of them overturned their way. They moved from their way of evil, their way of setting up their own agenda, and they trusting the God of the universe. And so it's interesting there, as it's the same question that we get with, with the fish. Right? Chapter 3 tells us that um, everyone repented, including the cows. Right? Even the cows had sackcloth on them. Right? Um, and so you could ask the question, how, how, how does this work? How do cows repent? Um, but this speaks to, again, in, in one sense, this, this whole theme uh, of everything being upside down in this book. This whole theme of everything being uh, overturned, or overthrown. Uh, everyone and everything we expected to behave and respond in a certain way in this book has not responded in the way we expected or hoped. From the prophet of the God, of, of God rather, to the sailors, to the fish, to the king of Nineveh, everything has been upside down. And so in one sense, you could say uh, the cows probably repent because a God who has a big heart um, could even soften uh, the hearts of cows. Um, It's a possibility he's God. Uh, He can do what he wants to do. But I don't think that's what's happening here. Um, And where do we get that clue? We get it at the beginning of verses 9. Verses 9, the uh, Ninevites ask a very vital question. Who knows? Right? Uh, What are they asking there? Are they asking who knows what the appropriate way is for us to repent? Uh, Who who knows what the right way is for us to respond to this God who has called judgment upon us? Uh, Who knows what it is that we need to do so that we can ask this God to relent? Remember, these guys had their own gods. They had their own ways of doing things. And so now they've been approached uh, that there's this God who's pronouncing judgment over them. And so they're asking, well, well, who knows? Who knows the way to lead us to proper repentance so that this God can relent? And so what the author is forcing us to ask here is to search for Jonah. Where is Jonah? That's what the Ninevites are asking. Who knows what the proper way of repenting is? You told us that that there's this great God who's going to pronounce judgment over us. We've had all our little gods and our ways of following them and sacrificing to them. But who knows how to respond to this God who brings judgment? Where is the prophet of the Lord to answer that? He's nowhere to be seen. And in chapter 4, we find out that he pronounced this short message and actually left. Again, being indifferent, doesn't care at all. He left town long ago. He didn't even explain what repentance should look like for these people uh, because he didn't want them to be saved in the first place. He didn't care for them. And so here they are, these poor Ninevites, trying to think of the right way to respond to the Lord. Um, And in their attempts, they're probably also mixing old practices with new ones. Again, because at the end of verses 9, look at what they say. We do not want to perish. That's their sentiment there. So we don't have the right theology We don't know what the right way is to repent. So who knows? Who's going to show us? Who's going to point us to the right direction? 
And the author is reminding us of chapter 1 again, where the sailors asked the same question. They didn't use these words, but that sentiment was there. Who knows how the storm is going to calm down? What should we do to calm the storm down? Who knows which God is doing this thing in chapter 1? Who knows what we need to do in order to not perish? Who knows? Maybe this will stop if we hurl cargo out of the boat. Who knows? The prophet was sleeping in chapter 1. Now in chapter 3, he ran away. And so here are people putting sackcloth on cows because all they want is to get right with this God who said he's going to pronounce judgment over them. And that question remains for us as well. There's a world out there who's dying. And people want to be saved, but they're asking, who knows what the way is to be saved? Who knows what the right way is to ask God for forgiveness? Who knows what the right way is to pray to God? Who knows what the way of salvation is? People who are perishing around us are asking those very questions. And if we are not there to answer that question, if we are going to be prophets, quote-unquote, to run away or prophets who sleep, and people around us will perish asking that very question, while you lived next door to them and they crying the whole night, who knows what the way to Jesus is? Who knows what the way to pray and to ask for forgiveness is? I mean, I don't have time. I have other things. My schedule is too busy. Who knows how to get right with the God of the universe? So the author is asking that to us. He's asking us not to sleep. He's asking us not to be indifferent like Jonah. He's asking us to have a heart for God and for God's mission. And there's people who are screaming. Who knows? And are we going to raise our hands up? Just like we sang last week. To mommy. Now we're going to say that when the, the world is screaming, who knows? Are we going to say, hey, I know. I know what the way is to be saved. I know what the way is to get right with the God of the universe. And I think as we close, um, it's probably just worthwhile thinking about what that answer is. Who knows what the way is to be saved? Well, there's no other way. But the only place where God overturns everything, the place where God overthrows everything. And that's the cross of Christ. Where Jesus received a, a death sentence so that our death sentence could be overturned, overthrown, so that he brings life to us. At the crucifixion, when Jesus was hanging there, he was marked with a sign that, that read above him, King of the Jews. And God overthrows that mockery and actually gives Jesus a name that's above every other name. So at the cross, God places his one and only begotten son into the belly of exile so that us who are foreigners, our status could be overturned so that we get true citizenship. It's at the cross that God overturns our criminal records, giving us a clean slate so that we can walk free. It's at the cross that my throne and your throne is overthrown and we are left as servants. And Jesus, who is king, rightfully takes his place. So when people ask, who knows? If you know the gospel, 
raise your hand. You know. Who knows how to get right with King Jesus? As a Christian, Mzalon, a disciple, you know. And if you know, that should, one, lead you to repentance. And secondly, it should lead you to answer that question to other people who are asking. Let's give them the heart of a God who relentlessly pursues them, a God who's determined to rescue them, God of second chances, God of grace, God who does not withhold good things from us, a God who withholds punishment that we rightfully deserve, a God of mercy, a God of love, a holy God who is determined to ensure that we are holy as he is, a God whose arms are wide open, whose heart is huge, a God who's patient, and is even patient with you this evening, that you would repent and turn to him and raise your hand and say you know to those who are asking. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we are grateful that there's those who, who came before us. When we asked who knows, they, they rose their hands. And they answered us and gave us the gospel. And we sit here today trusting you because through them you were faithful, Lord. So I pray that you would work this in us. As we think about our mission week, starting next week, Lord, that we would be people who are praying, raising our hands at the office, raising our hands where we play, raising our hands in the classroom or the lecture hall, raising our hands with our family, because we know where they can meet you. And so help us, even as we think about practically inviting people next week. But even beyond that, Lord, can we have your heart? Can we have your heart to love our enemy? Can we have your heart to love those who um, we would somewhat deem um, deserve judgment and nothing else? Soften our hearts to see them the way you see them, Lord, as your creatures who deserve mercy like we receive mercy. We thank you for the book of Jonah, and how you've been speaking to us through it. And help us, Lord, to revisit it as we go home. In your wonderful name we pray. Amen.